Produced in association with KPMG Australia, this is What Happens Next with Bernard Salt. Hello, I'm Bernard Salt. On this edition of the program, we look at the investment boost in Australian startups during the pandemic. When you compare the amount that was invested in startups from April to June last year to this year, we had a 38% increase. It's sort of unbelievable. This is seen as a sexy space and people are willing to allocate large portions of their uh, portfolio to this sort of early stage startup area. And we catch up with James Chin Moody, the CEO and founder of Sendal, to find out how the pandemic has affected his business. You can be 80% good to 100% of the market, or you can choose to be 100% good to 20% of the market. We really decided we were just gonna focus on that small business part of the market. We love the idea that we can actually help level the playing field for those small shippers. That's all coming up on the program when we discover what happens next. Well, a recent report by KPMG has found that despite the effects of the global pandemic, a record amount of venture capital was invested in Australian startups over the first six months of 2020, with 92 deals recorded so far this year. To find out why Australian startups remain attractive to investors, I spoke to KPMG Australia's head of high growth ventures, Amanda Price, and Steve Baxter, founder and CEO of Transition Level Investments. Amanda Price, Steve Baxter, welcome to the program. Thanks. Thanks very much. Amanda, I'll start with you. There was a recent survey that revealed a huge leap in startup investment for the first six months of 2020, which obviously has been during the pandemic. Was that unexpected? Um, Yes, our latest Venture Pulse report stated that investment into startups hit a new high over the first six months of 2020. So it reached a US of $945 million, which was up from the same period last year of $627 million. So that's a $318 million increase, which is pretty significant. Um, and actually what's even more telling is when you compare the amount that was invested in startups from April to June last year to this year, we had a 38% increase. So April to June was really when, you know, really COVID sort of started to hit and, and things started to happen. And so it's sort of unbelievable that we did get such an increase. So there has been a huge leap. I think, you know, was it unexpected? I don't really know what, what you would expect during a pandemic, to be quite honest. I think it's all pretty new um, to us. But in retrospect, um, it, it sort of makes sense for three reasons. And one, I think it's clear we've seen in the data that Australia re- reacted more quickly than the rest of the world to the impact of COVID-19. So a lot of startups raised capital to strengthen their balance sheets. Secondly, um, some of the sectors we're seeing unprecedented growth in and they need capital to support that growth. Um, I put a really good Queensland-based uh, example in here for Steve, which was uh, Go One, who has, has seen huge growth in, and that's in the edtech space. We've seen Sendal, which is a sort of Australian based courier service for small business. You know, they've raised $19 million to fund their growth in the US. And, and lastly, I think that COVID is, we're seeing instances where it's creating new opportunities. Um, there's a number of companies that pivoted their business to develop solutions uh, for the current environment. An example of that would be XYSense. So it's a workplace software startup that helps enforce social distancing. And they've just raised $5 million from investors such as Blackbird. And I wonder if you were able to raise any money pre-COVID for a social distancing app. Steve, what's your view on this? Um, We've definitely seen more activity. So when this all kicked off, we actually surveyed our uh, our syndicate investors and and got quite a surprising response. And there was was, was a willingness to to sort of continue investing in the space uh, and to maybe even go a little harder. And we we 
we repeated that survey sort of six or seven weeks later and got a very similar result, which was sort of good and quite quite heartening. The one thing I will say, that, it, and I don't disagree with anything, there's been lots of activity out there and a lot of the stats that Amanda just gave is, but we're not seeing the other side of that coin, and that is the valuations. So we're not actually seeing the terms around these investments. So are they are investors being opportunistic, or uh, which I think there's an element of, at least initially, uh, hence the strengthening the balance sheet uh, uh, comments, but also now once people understood what lockdowns mean, and let's hope we see an end to them soon, uh, what sort of new business disruptions that's actually bringing forward, and that's spurring that capital investment. Uh, Amanda, in regard to growth in investment, is Australia punching above its weight, or is this sector here still considered to be nascent compared with our global counterparts? There's certainly increased funding. I mean, last year, Australian VCs were reported to raise more than $4 billion in new funds. And and that, that's last year. So, and I think we've also seen sort of our capital options have expanded. We've certainly seen more sophistication and we're, we've got venture debt, crowdfunding, you know, Steve's got syndicates. Um, even yesterday, I actually read that Lee Jasper, who founded Aconex, uh, announced a $30 million fund called Second Quarter Ventures, which is our first secondary fund, which gives startups a way to offer early investors liquidity events without exiting or going public. And we've never seen that before. So I think we're definitely getting more sophisticated. And we've even seen sort of lately, in the last two months, Blackbird raising $500 million for its fourth fund, <laughs> you know. Um, so there's certainly a lot of money and a lot of raising out there. In, in terms of how we're competing, Steve, I'd probably throw that to you. I think you probably have a better sense of that. Steve? I think you just took my data points, Amanda. <laughs> uh, also, OIF as well, they raised $75 million funds. So there's, there's plenty of money being raised out there. I, I can't really talk to the growth because I don't really look at that, I suppose. And I always balance my view on, on, on the Australian scene against the US, for example, where two are often compared. We're one fifteenth their size in population. So that's my rough sort of, mm. my rough rule of thumb when people talk about the US. So I'm not, I don't know if there was $60 billion raised last year in the US. I've got no idea. But I think, you know, if, if there was, that would be then comparable. So I think we, we need to honestly look at the size of our markets and the size of our populations, I think, is if, if we're going to have an honest discussion on that debate. Uh, but I have not uh, I have not looked at that with respect to the, the growth at all. Why do you think there's been so much positive activity in the startup sector? And will it provide a large engine for economic growth? I'll answer the second bit first, which I say yes. Uh, it's always been the engine for economic growth going forward, the startup sector. When I talk startup, I mean uh, high growth global potential companies. So therefore, they have software and or a network at their core to deliver their service. So that, that's always been true. And I, and I think it's even more so true now. Um, so far as some of the why um, in the first part of your question is that you know, there's no real other options around. People are looking for something different to do. There is capital available. The traditional ways to, to you know, grow your capital aren't there as much as they have been before. This is seen as a sexy space and, and people are willing to allocate large portions of their uh, portfolio to, to this sort of early stage startup area. Mm. In your respective positions, what is it that you look for when investing or partnering with a startup? Is there an X factor, a gut feeling that you think this idea will be successful or does it have more to do with the business fundamentals that you're looking at? Ultimately, if we can't work with the people, the, the founders, the, 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 the senior managers, then we won't go near it. Bad teams are just bad teams and bad people are just bad people. So we boil it back down to that and then getting into the market fundamentals of, of, of what we think. Uh, about a certain sector, you know, addressable markets, a whole series of things. When you have traction, you can inspect things such as CAC and LTV and, and a whole series of you know, all the unit economics that help you make that informed decision. 
um, if they if they have traction with revenue. A lot of times they have traction with no revenue. So that, that gets even more exciting to understand that, that sort of behavior that's driving the growth of that business. Um, so, um, you know, people, traction, markets, I think is probably where, where we'd look. Amanda, what do you think? X factor or business fundamentals? For us, it's a reputational thing. So we're sort of looking at companies, yeah, some of them that have traction, but some might be really early. Yeah, we're not investing. So we're looking at companies that we're going to work with over a long period of time and take them potentially to our client base or take them to investors. This issue of investors really does interest me. Steve, when you look at the focus of investment activity and startup activity across Australia, is there a city or a suburb or a precinct or a demographic group or a cultural group that seems to epitomise the, the the genesis, the hotspot of where all this activity is coming from? Um, I would say that it would be Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, uh, in that order, and, and, and probably Perth and Adelaide, uh, from what I have seen. Um, Brisbane and, and I think there's a bit of, there's a bit of daylight between Melbourne and Brisbane. Unfortunately, Brisbane has come a long way in that respect. Um, we, however, do lack uh, I, I think the, the the depth of funding options that that uh, Sydney and Melbourne have. So that's uh, that's a real inhibitor for us. Amanda and Steve, thanks for helping us discover what happens next. Well, there's no doubt that during the pandemic, there's been an increase in consumers buying products online. And one company which has been in a prime position to optimise its business during this time is Sendal, the carbon neutral digital courier service designed specifically to cater for the e-commerce needs of small to medium businesses. I recently caught up with the founder and CEO of Sendal, James Chin Moody. James, welcome to the program. Thanks, Bernard. James, you started Sendal back in 2014 and it's gone from strength to strength. What was it about the idea that gave you the confidence to believe that it could be such a success? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's interesting because we didn't actually start off with the intention to be in logistics, funnily enough. Uh, we actually started off as a giving network. So, so the original business was um, was a company called TwoShare and and the, the, the central, I guess, purpose of that was that, you know, I, I and my co-founders had um, young children and that the idea behind the business was let's help people give things away that they no longer need. And, you know, of course, everyone likes uh, to both, you know, extend the lifespan of a bag of baby clothes or, and also like to receive free stuff, but it was all built around giving. And as we built that out, though, we quickly started to understand that there was this big pain point in the giving process, which was getting the items from one person to another. And so, you know, like I think many startups go down this, this particular journey, you start finding a problem, a really big problem that we needed to solve because it was really limiting, you know, the, the customer experience or, you know, the, the user experience around how to, to make it really easy to give. So we, we started to dig deeper and deeper into the shipping side of things. And what we found was that particularly if you're only sending a few things, like in this case, I was sending one thing to you know, somebody else, there were basically no options other than lining up at the post office. Um, so that business basically taught us how to do small scale micro logistics. 
And it's gone from strength to strength ever since. Yeah, well, I mean, within a month, you know, we, we, we sort of relaunched as a, as a shipping platform. Within a month, we were actually doing more volume on that than the, the giving marketplace after like, you know, two years. Um, and then it doubled again the second month. And now, um, you know, where it's interesting, five, fast forward five years, um, we've, uh, you know, we're, we're Australia's highest rated uh, shipping platform. We, we're 100% built uh, for the needs of small business. Uh, we, um, I think one of, one of the ways you might think about it is we've actually shipped over uh, 10 billion kilometres of parcel delivery now. That's like taking a truck uh, and driving it to Pluto and back. And, and we've done that 100% carbon neutral. So yeah, from this little funny thing of like, how do I how do I get a bag of baby clothes to someone else? We've, you know, it's been a, it's been an amazing journey. To Pluto and back. I love that. <laughs> Only you would calculate that distance. Uh, I am a space nerd from way back. <laughs> so, yeah. James, parcel sending has been around for a long time. Can you tell me a little bit about your business model and how it's managed to be different? in what is a quite crowded market. Yeah, well, one of the things we found, and, and it's interesting, when you look at the, the you know, parcel sending in, in, in the, 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 you know, the bulk, yes, it's been around for a long time. Yes, it looks like there's lots of players. But what we found, and, and I guess this was the, you know, one of the biggest lessons I've learned in my founder journey and my startup journey is actually, though, if you just take one particular part of that market, and, and what we were, we were basically taught in that, you know, by these small, ship, small senders and small shippers was if you just focus on the small business end of the market, those micro businesses, what's, what's interesting is one, you realise they don't actually have that much choice. If you want to send a parcel to anywhere in the world right now, who do you go to? You, you know, generally it's lining up at the post office, right? You don't have that much choice. And the second thing we realised was that nobody was building 100% for them. And I think there's a huge thing around, uh, you know, you can either be 80% good to everyone, you can be 80% good to 100% of the market, or you can choose to be 100% good to 20% of the market. And one of the biggest things that we did is we, we, we really decided we were just going to focus on, you know, that small business part of the market. And, and in fact, our entire company, we, we think of it as shipping that's good for the world. We love the idea that we can actually help level the playing field for those small shippers against the big shippers who have so much choice, have so many options. And so, you know, why do I think that we've been, um, you know, successful in, a, in, a, in, in what looks prima facie a crowded market? It's because of that really strong focus on just trying to build for a particular customer and then trying to be the very best we could at it. Looking forward, what does the future look like for Sendle? Yeah, well, I've, you know, it's, it's interesting. We... Um, you know, we, we started off in Australia, but we're, we uh, actually have seen the same, same problem um, existing all around the world, which is, you know, basically small business. When it comes to logistics, they end up generally paying much more than they should and they get a lot less than they deserve. And so we, you know, when we looked around, we saw the same, same issue in America. Um, so in 2019, um, just last year, we actually launched Sendle in the US. So now we're not, not only the only 100% carbon neutral, 100% small business national carrier in Australia. We're the only 100% carbon neutral national carrier in the US as well, um, which is very, very exciting. So, you know, we're looking forward. We, we think that there's, you know, um, you know our, our purpose is to level the playing field and bring and carbon neutral delivery to everyone. Well, we're, you know, we're starting with Australia and the US, but then we'll eventually want to go to other countries as well. James, what advice would you give to other people wanting to launch their own startup? Is there a recipe for success? I'd say there's a recipe. I think, 
you know, there's there's been some definitely some things that I've learned. And and I think I think the journey of a startup is, you know, learning lots and lots of lessons and then trying to work out how do you assimilate that into that journey. Um probably one that I, I mentioned this a bit before is that and and I definitely, you know, um am guilty of doing this, was really not not learning the, the lesson of focus. Um often if something doesn't work, we sometimes think it's because we're not doing enough. Well, one of the things I found and, you know, looking back at, you know, sometimes because you're trying to do too much. Um, there's a great book called um, Traction by Weinberg. I don't know if you read that, Bernard. It's no. like, um, for me, anyone who's, who's very early in that startup journey, it's, it's fantastic because it, it doesn't just talk about product market fit. It talks about product traction channel, which is the way you get your product to market and market fit. And in fact, the, the thing that I've learned is that, you know, having a great startup is actually not just great product and great market, but actually also finding the right traction channel, the way to get that product to market. And so if you, if you think of a startup as a slot machine where you're, you're trying to sort of get those three things to line up, one of the biggest mistakes that I, and again, I made this and I see a lot of others making, is you might secretly have like three products and you might secretly have like five markets, you know, you call them personas and there's five people who want this thing and you, you might actually be, be pursuing seven channels, which would, I'm going to do some, you know, I'm going to do some SEM and I'm going to, you know, a search engine and I'm going to do some viral and some, uh, you know, some business development and all this sort of thing. But actually, if you look at that, that's like three times seven times five combinations of product, traction channel and market. That's like 105 different combinations. And, you know, even if you get one of those right, how do you know which one it is? And so one of the biggest lessons I've learned is, you know, rather than trying to do everything at once, try instead, you know, you know, and this is what we, uh, the reason why I know that is because with TwoShare, we did too many things. With Sendle, we try to be really, really clear. We do parcel delivery for small business, right? And then we followed a few channels. And that for us has been a really big lesson, you know, try not, you know, sometimes you're doing just too much and strip it away and find that core, find that beautiful thing that really resonates. Just out of interest, you started in 2014. How long did it take you to get to that position? Was that an instant realisation or was it a long, slow process over four or five years? Yeah, well, it was interesting because, um, I mean, we started as Symbol in 2014. We actually started as TwoShare a couple of years before that. And I, I think for us, it was the transition from one business to another um, with basically the same technology at its core was, was the time when we sat back and really tried to learn. Um, and, and, and I think there's, for, for me, again, that's that startup journey of, you know, and, and we're still learning, you know, we still learn every day um, of better ways we can do it from folk who've done it before, but also from mistakes that we've made. And, um, but yeah, that, that was one of the seminal pieces where we just said, you know, if we're going to do this again, if we're going to start up, you know, a different way of approaching it, let's simplify let's really try to, you know, drill into what matters. James Chen Moody, thanks for helping us discover what happens next. I'm Whitney Fitzsimmons, the executive producer of What Happens Next. And now it's that time in the program for something a little bit different where we turn the tables and I get to interview our host and resident demographer, Bernard Salt. Hey, Bernard. Hey, Whitney. So what about Amanda and Steve, what they had to say about startup investment during the pandemic? I was really surprised to hear that there's so much investment going on in startups. Well, I was surprised initially, but when I thought about it, perhaps that 
kind of makes sense because of the pandemic. And in fact, Amanda made the point about her the the social distancing app or business that uh, that she was uh, uh, connected with. In other words, a lot of a lot of businesses, I suspect have been prompted by the pandemic. And uh, I suppose many of these were going to happen anyway, but uh, what has happened is that the pandemic has has accelerated the uh, the formation of these businesses and the um, therefore the requirement for investment in those businesses. And it's interesting to note that, I guess, you know, investors in this sector really have confidence in Australian startups. I mean, they must because that's where they're putting their capital. Well, yes, I suppose it is reassuring to have so many people investing and expressing confidence in the future of Australia. And I think that that's really what we need at the moment. People who are putting their money where their mouth is and investing in the future of Australia. It really does deliver confidence to the rest of, uh, of the business community, I would have thought. And wasn't it interesting to hear how James created Sendal, you know, out of a desire to repurpose baby clothes? So the original concept of the business was not necessarily Sendal, you know, a courier service. It was actually something to sort of repurpose baby clothes and share with other um, new parents. And now Sendal's raising, you know, millions of dollars in funding. Again, this is a common story when you speak with entrepreneurs that they will say they started off in this business, but in actual fact, after a while, they realised they were in another business. And what it has shown me, James's example and, and others, that the pathway to get from A to C may not be through B. The pathway from A to C might be to D, <laughs> F, G, back to B, and then across to C. In other words, it's not necessarily a straight line to business success. And in some ways, that is also a reflection of the requirement for business agility or mental agility. If you have the goal in your mind, then you can follow a quite circuitous path in order to get to success. And that's clearly what James has done. Yeah. And it's obviously not an easy journey. I mean, he also did talk about the common traps that startup founders fall into. And I thought that was quite fascinating as well. Well, the common trap, yes, that he was talking about was the uh, the, the need for focus, the, the need to focus on a specific issue. When you start a startup, I imagine uh, you your mind is across every single issue, and if you if you try and solve every single issue, then you just get bogged down. You can't actually get any traction. You can't move forward. But to have the ability to identify the precise issue, the key issue, the fact the factor that is going to transform that business and make it achievable. That I think is the uh, is is the insight that he delivered. Find the thing that is the problem and focus your management effort and intellect on that issue, and then everything else will fall into line. I thought that was a, a terrific insight from James. Yeah, find the problem and then fix the problem. That's the answer. Quite a fascinating episode, Bernard. Absolutely. And in fact, uh, very positive. And in many respects, that's really what we want to hear at the moment. Positive stories about achievement, about aspiration, about actually delivering business success. And um, terrific stories, very positive, upbeat people as well. All right. Well, that's all for the program. Thank you, Bernard. Thank you, Whitney. And thank you for listening to What Happens Next. listening to What Happens Next with Bernard Salt. 
produced in association with KPMG Australia. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts.